Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski, and I'm looking at Dr. Margaret Chisholm. Hi, Meg. Hi, Kim. It's great to be back. Be back is right because Dr. Meg Chisholm was here, episode number 133, where she talked about arts and humanities. Visual arts is Dr. Chisholm's first love. There's so much going on with her, and she's just one of these most creative exciting, visual, innovative people. And it was a great episode on 133. But let me tell you, for those of you who weren't with us on episode number 133, Dr. Margaret Chisholm is a professor of medicine here at Johns Hopkins, specifically a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. She's a member of our world-famous Miller-Colson Academy of Clinical Excellence. And the author of a book entitled from Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. Meg, there's so much going on. Uh, we were chatting before I pressed record about your new Nexus Award, which is this fabulous, fabulous opportunity to bring, convene people around the country who are also interested in using the arts to envision the future of patient care and the future of medicine. Would you like to just briefly give a little plug about this wonderful award you were given to uh, bring all these wonderfully creative people together? Well, I just say that's one of the great things about being at Johns Hopkins University is opportunities like this exist. So, you know, Hopkins has acquired this new building in D.C. that's uh, right across the street from the National Gallery of Art. So, I'm thrilled that we're going to be bringing health professions leaders and representatives from nursing and medicine from around the country and actually from Canada as well to envision the future of museum-based health professions education, how teaching medical learners, nursing learners in the museum can help them provide better care to patients. So I'm really excited about that opportunity. One of the, one of the wonderful opportunities in our community. Yes. Thank you, Meg. And could you just, I, I can't help it because I just loved your content. Can you tell people just real briefly what VTS is and, and kind of give a high level overview of what we talked about last time and the experience you, you invited me to participate in? Yeah. So there are a lot of museum based, uh, learning activities. And one of them is visual thinking strategies. It has a, a, a pretty large, uh, evidence base from its work with. K through 12 students, but it was found that adult learners also can uh, engage in these activities, this activity of ETS, these discussions, uh, which is basically having an open-ended discussion that's facilitated around a work of art where we learn from the art about, you know, how to care for patients, how to think critically, uh, we learn to tolerate ambiguity, lots of clinically relevant skills. And so, uh, it's been used in health professions education for about 15 years and uh, has this real clear translation to the clinic. Uh, so we've used this with at Hopkins from pre-meds through CME courses and have found it really uh, an exciting and engaging way of teaching people to be better doctors. Thank you. Perfect, Meg. And this is a great segue into our topic today because this visual thinking strategy tool is all about engaging and being. it's done in community. And, and I guess one could go through, we do, many of us go through museums and galleries alone. 
And that's very valuable, wonderful, meditative, all those things. And yet when I was participating in your workshop, there's something unique and special about being in community with others and hearing others' experiences and why they selected, for example, a certain piece of art and what that meant to them and how they thought that could be applied to their work. And that brings us to the topic today of social support. And I got an email in Hopkins about you had this wonderful online column done in womansworld.com. And it mentioned, I said, I know Med Chisholm. And it talked about your book, From Survive to Thrive, and all about social support and relationships and engagement in communities. So it got me thinking about faculty development and how back in the day we used to all have these seminars and workshops and in classrooms together and all this energy and conversation and people walking out together and chatting in this on the sidewalk and in the hallways and in the restrooms and all that community. And I'm my whole mantra and my whole career has been to build community. So I'm also an extrovert. So this just kind of really is right in my, in my veins. And I love, um, I love the topic. And it got me thinking since post COVID, how we've moved away from those classroom in person experiences. And so I loved reading this article in a uh, woman's world and thought maybe you could kind of remind us or talk to us a bit about social support and, um, the, why this is important to us and how, what the, effects are and correlates with with our life satisfaction and generativity in the careers and in our lives. Yeah, so I welcome this <laughs> chance to talk about another favorite subject of mine, which is human flourishing. So, you know, the, for millennia, uh, people have thought, philosophers and ordinary people have thought about, you know, what does a good life look like? And there's pretty much agreed upon across traditions, across cultures uh, of a few things that are really valued as ends in themselves, not means to an end, but ends in themselves, things that people universally desire. Um, and some of those, uh, well, they've been articulated by Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard, who directs a human flourishing program there, uh, but they've been articulated as meaning and purpose close social relationships, mental and physical health, happiness and life satisfaction, and character and virtue. But these are what most people uh, see as goods in themselves, not means to an end, but goods in themselves that they want for themselves when they look back on their life. They want a life that has meaning and purpose. They want a life that has close social relationships, uh, a life, uh, you know, that they're in which they're physically and mentally healthy, etc. Now, you don't have to have all of those things to lead a good life. Some people have physical illnesses, have mental illnesses, and they actually can flourish despite or maybe even because of those illnesses, they help them uh, become better people in some way. Uh, but, um, you know, those are things that people desire, whether or not they're always attainable is another thing. Um, and people can flourish again without some of these. But thinking about close social relationships is one of those, right? And mental health and physical health. And there is something to be said about 
uh, community and being together as pathways to flourishing. And in fact, Tyler Vanderweel, who I will reference again, Tyler Vanderweel is an epidemiologist who studied these large epidemiologic data sets from, you know, 30 years of where people have been followed longitudinally and asked a variety of questions and they look at how their life turns out and they see that there's certain pathways to flourishing. There's certain pathways to having this good life, having a life filled with meaning and purpose, character and virtue, close social relationships, etc. And the four pathways that he identified, and he's got a great paper, uh, it's in the journal PNAS from 2017 on, uh, on human flourishing. He's got this great paper that shows the link between these pathways and these flourishing outcomes. And the pathways to flourishing are family, work, education, and community. And specifically, he identified religious community, in part because that's kind of community that questions are asked about in these data sets from 30, 40 years ago. So, um, so thinking about those pathways to flourishing and what they have in common is that they all involve other people right? Um, You know, you're part of a family, uh, you're part of a work community, you're part of an education, a learning community, um, and then uh, obviously other communities like a religious community. And and thinking about the pandemic specifically, uh, all of us know how the pandemic disrupted those pathways to flourishing, how our family relationships were disrupted sometimes for the better, right? Because we were staying home and seeing more of our family, but sometimes, you know, for the worse, if our loved one was in the hospital or if uh, our family members were separated geographically. Now, sometimes we got up to speed with Zoom and things like that, and we could connect in ways that we hadn't before over a distance, but family was definitely disrupted. Uh, work certainly <laughs> disrupted and probably is never going to return to the, what it was before the pandemic. Um, but, you know, those birthday parties we celebrated in the office. I mean, I started coming back to the office after the pandemic, but I was wondering, why am I coming back? There is no one here. Um, everyone was working in isolation, even if they were, they were there behind closed doors with their masks off so that they could uh, have their masks off. So work was disrupted. Our um, learning, our education communities were disruptive. Uh, Specifically, if you're talking about faculty development, everything went online. In the medical school, medical students couldn't go to their courses in person. It all had to be done online. Um, And then our religious communities or other communities were disrupted. Now, sometimes we got new communities. We got engaged in kind of online drawing groups or book groups or things like that. Um, But I don't know. uh, I didn't go to a religious service during the pandemic. um, And I certainly didn't engage in them online because that wasn't really why I was going. I can't really have a transcendent experience online. So um, (laughs) so that was really disrupted. Um, But speaking of uh, just an aside about this education. So it's interesting because we had our museum-based courses that we had piloted before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, we decided to try moving them online. And we really did have 
build a tight community of learners online. And everybody felt it was really meaningful. And in fact, we surveyed people at the end of each course. We offered this one-week course online for uh, six times. And the medical students all said, oh, if we offered this course again, we would want some of the sessions online. This was great. So then when the pandemic lifted somewhat and we got back into the museums, we decided to offer most of the sessions. We had 17 sessions in this one course. We offered 15 of them uh, uh, in person, but the rest online, a couple online. And every student afterwards said, oh, ditch the online ones. We want them all in person. So, you know, if you only experience something online, you don't know how different it is in person. Um, mm. So I think that was a lesson I really took away is that, um, you know, there's some things that if you've never gone to a conference, an international conference in person, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're missing when you're doing it online. I I personally won't go to any more online conferences. I did a couple during the pandemic and just found them so <laughs> unsatisfying. Uh, I really want to see people and have casual conversations and, you know, joke in the bathroom <laughs> together or something. I don't really, uh, I don't get anything out of the online learning experience myself. It's it's a shadow itself. I don't want to live in a metaverse. Mm. Um the thing about these communities, I think, um, uh, whether they're family or work or education or other communities, is that they, you know, you get the sense that somebody really is depending on you to be there. And they really, it matters if you're not there. As you know, if you're in an online learning space and somebody's kind of got their screen blacked out or is, you know, kind of checked out of a breakout room or is multitasking, um, you know, you don't get the sense that, I mean, to me, that conveys that your presence isn't missed, that no one's depending on you to be there. Um, And you can't avoid that in person, right? You can't be on your phone in person. It's just unacceptable, really. Um, Although maybe in some, (laughs) some age groups, it's considered more acceptable, but Generally, people want your attention. They want to feel like you're listening to them. Um, and, and you know, the nonverbals are, mm. are just limited uh, with online. Even if you have your camera on, it's still you're not getting your full nonverbals. I could be, you know, texting right now, Kim, as I'm right. speaking to you. I'm a good multitasker. Exactly. Um, so, so I think there's so much lost. Uh, in terms of those those um, connections uh-huh. that we have to other people. Well, you you know you when you were talking earlier about it made me think of that you don't know what you don't know. If someone only knows the online Zoom experience, and I imagine there are a lot of younger learners who, for that period of time, you know, grade school, high school, got accustomed to the online experience. They, they don't appreciate that in person. So it's like what you can watch a concert on your TV or recorded or go to YouTube and watch a concert. It's very different from being at the concert. But if you don't know anything, you don't know what you don't know. You, you, one might then engage in 
those four pathways, family, work, education, religious community, any kind of community, everything could be virtual in that metaverse that you talked about. And that might be their totality of, well, this is, I am doing these things. I'm, this is how one does it without recognizing that they're, they're missing the fullness of each of those pathways. So I'm just wondering if, you know, if we are diluting ourselves, not diluting, or maybe diluting and diluting ourselves, that when we, when we do these things virtually and, and, and enter into community virtually, while yes, we can be bonding and, you know, have some amount of closeness, that it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not really contributing to our flourishing. In fact, is it maybe, you know, diluting our flourishing because it's giving us a false sense of community. It's, it's a, it's a, the airsots community. It's not, it's the, it's the, the fake, the diet soda of the real soda. You know, do you get it what I'm trying to yeah, say? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, it is. I mean, I think the concert is a great example, right? If you go to a concert or versus seeing a performance streaming, even if it's a live streaming of that concert, it's a totally different experience because it's in, you know, it's not sensual, right? I can see you and I can hear you, but I don't see all of you. I don't see you in three dimensions. I don't, you know, feel, you don't feel, we don't share the same space. Yeah. You know, that's why I wouldn't go to, uh, you know, a, a religious, ser- uh, you can't smell the incense, right? You, you know what I mean? There's something about being in a space together, in a three-dimensional space, that's uh, where you're moving and feeling the air, the whether it's a, the warm air of a concert where people are crowded together, or it's, uh, you know, the, the smells um, of, of the environment. I mean, I think the setting is so important. And I think it's uh, we know it's important to learning and memory and things like that. You know, there's state-dependent learning, right? Um, it's really part of the experience. And so it is a sliver of reality, but it's only a sliver. And, yeah, I mean, it, oh, it, so, you know, another example might be going to Rome. Like, you know, I could go to Rome on a vacation. Or I could watch a, you know, a travel log, or I could watch somebody, you know, live walking through Rome and showing me the sights. I mean, that's a really different experience. Yeah, you're not virtual, eating the food together. Right, right. The virtual reality you could put on the goggles and three dimensionally be as an avatar somewhere, but we, yeah, we're missing. You're right. The, the set, all the senses are not engaged in that you, right. unless. I mean, even if a movie theater is shooting, you know, aromas at us, it's right, still, right, no, it's no, I, okay. I went to uh, see one of the John Waters scratch and sniff. Uh, what was that? Uh, polyester, I think that was an odorama. Um, but but um, so, yeah. And I think the other thing is that the, what this gets at is a deeper philosophical question, because I'm going to go off on these big philosophical questions, which is, you know, what's the nature of being human? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is more than uh, something that can be experienced in a metaverse. Uh, you know, 
I think you think about accompanying somebody through their suffering as we do as healthcare professionals. How different is that in person where you can hold somebody's hand or, you know, kneel at their bedside? How different uh, that experience is. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, if that's all you have, Mm-hmm. And many people never have the opportunity to travel or to go to a live concert or to go to an in-person conference, um, you know, in some other country. That's, you know, it's it's better than nothing, but I would say it's a sliver of that experience. And we want to open up those experiences to more people rather than, I think, reduce uh, the experiences uh, and isn't that the isn't that the paradox, Meg, that artificial intelligence and all the technology and the the FaceTiming and all those advances in technology that that did allow a grandma and grandpa to talk and see their grandbaby around the world or across the country or for all of us to do used to be conference calls back in the olden days and now Zoom. Isn't this a blessing in one hand because it it is efficient that we don't have to drive to a place to be together. We can click a mouse button. So that's the, you know, the, the push, pull, sweet, sour pros and cons, the paradox of it, that it, that telehealth and telemedicine. Yes. Some patients, it's not easy for them to get out of their home. So maybe meeting with Dr. Chisholm on zoom is convenient, but, then you're saying it's it's a sliver. It's not representing the fullness, the fullness of life and experiences. So how do we marry these competing endpoints, efficiency, ease, with um, being present and intentionality? Because all those things you said earlier of people, all of us learning how to disengage or pretend like we're engaged on Zoom, how do we marry those competing interests of trying to be efficient while still trying to maintain our humanity and our connectedness with each other? Because we know social support is so vital to our thriving and our flourishing. How do we, you know, how do we make that? And, and um, you know, how do we make sure in the future that we don't go too far afield with AI and and um, technologies that allow us to even withdraw even more to make it easier, even easier to be isolated? Well, you, you know, I, I mean, it's just funny that I, to me because I'm such a I mean, I have like an AI research project going and I'm, uh, you know, have a lot of scholarship in. Uh, the area of social media, and I'm on uh, social media a lot. So, um, but I think we all know the downsides of all these uh, innovations. And, you know, in making a decision about how we're going to use a technology, I, I mean, that's the great thing about science and technology, right? They offer us a lot of opportunities. Um but they don't tell us how uh, we should use these or whether we should use these opportunities. They they just describe these opportunities. And it's up to us to um, go back, I think, to these bigger philosophical questions 
and these questions of what do we want out of life um, to think about whether or not uh, we want to, you know, we always have a choice in front of us. Do we want to choose to engage this way or another way? I would say I'm reading this great book. So I'm going to put in a plug for Russ Roberts. He's the president of uh, a new university in Jerusalem, Uh Um, but he was at Stanford. And his book uh, is called Wild Problems. I highly recommend it um, because he takes he, he talks about decision making. And there's the kind of economist way of making decisions that um, can get us to a certain point, but they don't really help us with what he calls wild problems, which is the name of the book. And the wild problems are the ones that you can't really solve using kind of quantitative pro-con kind of lists. And he gives us the example Darwin. And Darwin, you know, in his, uh, uh, you can see in his own hand, in his writings, before he was married or even thinking about uh, being married, he started making a pro and con list about being married, about marriage. And, you know, he toted up the pros and toted up the cons. But the question is, he'd never been married. So he really didn't, couldn't envision or imagine all the potential pros and maybe some of the potential cons even of being married until you're there, right? So because he hadn't been there, he couldn't imagine. So it's a really great book. It uses several examples from science as well as uh, Kafka, who actually decided not to get married on the basis of pros and cons list. But um, but it is it's but there are certain problems, I think, that or decisions that you have to make. And I think use of a technology is one where it's not a a tame, easy problem to solve. And I think you have to kind of go back to what your values are. Uh, And that's what he, he talks about in the book is talking, he's got a chapter called uh, privileging principles, I think is going back to your principles and saying, well, what are my values? What are my principles and does making a decision in this direction kind of support that and lead me, um, you know, to acting out my principles, um, behaving virtuously in a way? Or is this something that's, you know, uh, going against my principles or not going to help me become more virtuous in, in some way? So I do think thinking about technology is well, I could do this. Like I could meet um, with, say, uh, my students and it, it do museum-based work uh, virtually. But, you know, I really am committed to teaching in museum spaces because I think there's something special about these spaces. I think they offer this kind of sanctuary, this time kind of that's the space is sort of separate from our usual hospital spaces or homes, domesticated spaces. There's something that can be, you know, transcendent about a museum space that I think helps people um, grow and develop and transform themselves, that opens them up to big questions and reflecting on who they are as people and what they want out of life and what they want out of being a healthcare professional. Um, 
that you can't really do in um, virtually and can't even do in a classroom as well. So, so, so you know, that's one of my principles: is the museum is a sacred space where transformation can occur, and so anything I can can do in the museum, I will. Now, obviously, the pandemic, you know, and things like that can sometimes limit uh, our ability to teach in person, and then we take the next best thing. But uh, I pretty much think that this wild, this is a wild problem, and we need to go back to our principles to help guide us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I I thank you for bringing my attention, our our attention to that book, Wild Problems, is I, I was just talking with a neighbor over the weekend. And I said, oh, because we were bemoaning the fact we were both trying to volunteer at a, at a nursing home down the road. And it involved all these screenings. We had to get criminal history and drug screenings. And Fingerprints. Every, <laughs> every place we went, we had, they would say, what's your phone number? And they were texting us links. And then you have to go to the link and then you'd have to fill in all this information. And, and my neighbor is in her late 70s. And she's not as tech savvy. And it was very frustrated, frustrating. It was frustrating for me because every link of every place we went to had seven or eight pages. It's like a checking in online for an appointment, but it asks you the same information. And then you're, depending on your phone, you couldn't see the screen. You couldn't go to the next <laughs> thing. And I'm trying to do mine, helping her with hers. And we were both, you know, going into that mode of, you know, I wish I could get rid of these phones altogether. It's maddening. And I said, I, and I told her, I can't tell you how many times I feel like just cutting the cord and I can see why people go off the grid. But then you think, but then if I were to do that, if I were to go to Verizon and say, here's my phone, you know, let's burn it. How would I talk to anyone in my family or friends? Because I don't have a landline anymore. I, all my work email, I mean, I can walk the dog and check email on my phone now, so I don't have to be tied to my desktop. I have my personal email on there. I do Google searches. I watch my puppy dog and kitten videos on YouTube, you know, during lunchtime. Every I'm so hamstrung by this. So that's the 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 push pull of where I think it gets back to that um, what are my values is that intentionality that if, you know, you said when COVID happened or when whatever happens, if you go to an institution or there's a new practice or a new protocol or a patient where it requires one to do whatever, it may be an introvert listening to this would say, well, I don't ever want to be in a classroom again. I want to always be on Zoom. There are certain things in our lives, in the course of our lives, where we are obligated to do certain things, but it's the intentionality of recognizing, okay, Kim, I'm going to do these on Zoom, but just like Dr. Chisholm said, my values, my principles are being our community, our community-based and engaged with other human beings. So I will sacrifice a bit to do the Zoom, the virtual, and make sure I have space in my week to know, meet my friends physically at the park for a walk, to physically meet for coffee at Starbucks, to to physically go walk around Ace Hardware where there are other human beings in three dimension navigating um, aisles. So that I think is what I've come to figure out. And I'm wondering if you can offer some other advice to other faculty members or leaders 
who are thinking about these these problems, these dilemmas, these these wild problems. How do you balance? There's never a week goes by when when faculty don't say to me, "Is there a hybrid version? Is there a hybrid option? Can we do this on Zoom?" And then other people say, "I wish we did this in person. It's so much better in person." And my head just spins around and around and around because you can't please everyone. And if yeah. I just please myself, then I'm also not serving my faculty well. So, or your patients. I mean, so how how does how do you what tools you know as a psychiatrist can you give us to help us be centered and grounded on our values while being nimble and flexible to be able to adjust to demands that are external to us? Yeah, so I I don't know if I have any brilliant advice as a psychiatrist, but I will say as a, you know as a human being, um, I think that intentionality. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there is the important thing. I would say you mentioned you know being an extrovert or introvert. So I'm very introverted. So my natural inclination would be to do everything virtually. Um, uh, but that I wouldn't really grow <laughs> and develop as a person. I would just, it's not necessarily, I think, so intentionality isn't just about what's most comfortable to you, uh, but it's about, you know, what's going to be uh, a potential uh source of growth and development. So I do think as a psychiatrist now, I will say that I think it's important to think about goals. Um, I think too often we uh, focus more on our feelings at the moment. Um, and again, as an introvert, my feeling would be, you know, it's much more comfortable to <laughs> be at home. But if, you know, some of my goals are to, uh, help uh, people become better doctors or to help, um, you know, to serve my patients better. Um, If my goals are to, um, you know, grow in terms of my own discomfort being a public speaker or something like that, um, I think it's, I think I should be intentional about the decisions I make and whether that's going to get me closer to my goal or further away from my goal. So I do think setting goals is an important step. What are your goals for yourself personally, professionally? Um, you know, have, take a look at how you're spending your time and whether the things that you're doing are things that are leading you closer to your goals or, or remaining static or even sometimes taking you further away from your goals. So I do think um, discomfort mm-hmm. is, is you know, is a, feeling discomfort, some discomfort, it can be a place of growth. Um, and so that's why we like to get those students into the museum because it's a little disorienting. <laughs> that I love that you went, you went there because that's what was sticking with me is that this hedonistic tendency to say, well, if I'm not happy, if I'm not, if this isn't easy for me or enjoyable for me or to my preference or to my liking, it must be bad. Mm-hmm. And so I like how you, you know, came back to that, that the discomfort is where we have growth. And I'm reminds me now of what happens at the gym. If all of my workouts were pleasant and didn't um, <laughs> cause me any discomfort, I know that my muscles are not growing. You know, you have to 
put tension, put some stress on the muscles to grow. You have to put some tension and stress on your heart muscle to improve your oxygen and your, your cardiovascular health. So it's the same thing. I think it's a good reminder to me that sometimes that when my brain hurts, it's not necessarily a sign that it's dangerous and I need to run away. I mean, I'm obviously, if there's something, my brain sells me danger, I will definitely run. But it's also that intentionality and focus of, Kim, why is your instinct now to run away or to get grumpy or to be angry about this? Is it because is it a, is it because it's difficult or is it against my value? So like really interrogating right. that discomfort and recognizing that that discomfort may be beneficial versus harmful. So that's where that kind of the interesting part of that discomfort, like what kind of discomfort are we talking? But I, I think that's important that we, we remember that sometimes that discomfort is good or can be good. Yeah. And I think you brought in the key piece, which is reflecting on it, right? When we're mm-hmm. experiencing something uncomfortable to reflect on it. Russ Roberts and Wild Problems, um, because I'm a little bit obsessed with this book right now. (laughs) I read 168 pages of it. Yeah, it's a short book uh, in like a couple of hours last night. It's an easy read. But um, but he I felt very called out because he said this in this hedonistic kind of frame. He said, you know, there's the pool and margarita pleasure. (laughs) And then there's uh, the, you know, hiking in Ireland pleasure if you're planning a trip, right? So are you planning a pool and margarita trip or are you planning a hiking trip in, you know, usual rain in Ireland, right? Uh-huh. So thinking about like what you want out of the experience and sometimes you do want a pool and margarita experience. Right. right. Uh, but, but if everything's a pool and margarita experience, uh, you're not necessarily going to have the same opportunities for growth. And maybe you'll get growth yeah. in other ways from other things you're doing. Uh, but just thinking intentionally about what kind of experience you want to have, I, I, I think is really important. Yeah, and you're right. And after the hundredth pool and margarita experience, guess what? It's not so fun anymore. It's right. interesting how that can that, that same thing is like it's it loses its luster. And then as academics, you know, we are so curious, I think, and we do organically have that growth mindset. We will seek other bigger, better pools or margaritas. Uh, yeah, so th- I, I love these kind of philosophical conversations. <laughs> this, is, this is great. So let's bring bring us back to kind of wrap up with social support. And I remember my, my degrees are in sociology, you know, and learning about social support, instrumental support, um, and instrumental support and emotional social support, the different components of it. We have, you know, one of our colleagues here in geriatrics, Dr. Thomas Cujo, has done some work on social isolation and how deleterious that is for our health. And and there's, you, you, you know, you quoted some research earlier from Dr. Vanderweel, and so many others have pointed to be that the social support is so important to success in our in our lives in all different facets but what what can you say to us um some more around social support and all all its different facets of where we can find it how we can um build it in and see it and recognize it where maybe we're not seeing it and i maybe i'll say one more thing because i know i'm rambling a little bit but i was coaching a faculty member yesterday and um 
And I, 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 I talked about, well, in growth, in generalities, to be very general, and I was being very, you know, stereotypical, women historically have been, you know, socialized to tend and befriend, and men don't have that. So they're a little bit disadvantaged in older age. I'm a gerontologist. So in older age, in general, you know, men don't, when they're asked who their best friends are, they will say their wives. And women, when they ask us who our best friends are, we'll say, I'll say them <laughs> to them. And I wouldn't necessarily say my husband. So it's that kind of irony is that in older age, I was generalizing that men don't necessarily have friends. And she said, I don't have any friends, Kim. Wow. I, you know, I'm a professor here at Hopkins. She has lots of colleagues. She has lots of trainees. So she's got the, the work. She has two kids, family. She's got the education, learning community. And I don't know if she, about her religious or other communities, but she said, Kim, I don't have any friends. I'm so, my whole life has been working, 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 yeah. working, taking care of my kids and now taking care of a husband who has dementia. She's like, I don't have friends. So, you know, what, those of us who are so consumed that we live to work, can you give us something, a parting comments about the value of mm -hmm. social support? Yeah. So, um, Again, I think this is uh, where intentionality comes in uh, because, you know, family generally, for better or worse, is forever. Uh, but friends come and go. And even our best friends come and go. And certainly as you near retirement age and things like that, people are moving to be closer to their grandchildren or fleeing to another country or whatever. Um, so you know, you always have to, I think, not only maintain uh, friendships and really put effort in and make decisions. Like I could, um, you know, work another hour or I could go visit that friend or I could call that friend. Um, I So I think being intentional about how you spend your time and building in time to sustain friendships and then to cultivate new friendships because mm -hmm. even um you know with a lot of effort to sustain friendships there's just some natural attrition of friends so i think you always have to be putting effort in to sustain friendships and to cultivate new friendships or they will just fade away and it's really important to have friends, really important. And I think uh, I share, you know, the, the plight of many academics who are, you know, pouring everything into their work and their family, and that's a lot on one's plate. Um, but thinking back, um, you know, are there opportunities where I could have, you know, made different choices and, you know, attending friends of funerals, the oh. friends' funerals. How many of us are busy and our work schedule doesn't even allow us to attend a friend's funeral? Oh. I, I mean, so kind of setting maybe some principles. Oh. You know, if I have a friend who dies <laughs> or a friend's wife or husband who dies, I'm going to go to their funeral. Um, oh. Just making some things, I think, a priority, making some rules. Um, I have, you know, when I got promoted, I made a rule for myself. I am not working evenings or weekends. Uh, a, lo a lot of people work mm -hmm. evenings and weekends. And I, I, 
you know, just want to say, stop, <laughs> stop working evenings and weekends. Your life is too short. Have do something fun, mm-hmm. whether it's something, a pool and margarita fun or something where you're challenging yourself. Fun. Uh, but do something fun with other people. I think that would be my uh it, it takes effort, it takes intentionality, and it takes, I think, making it a rule. And that's how we flourish. Dr. Meg Chisholm, folks, thank you so much for joining us in the Faculty Factory. And Dr. Chisholm, thank you so much as usual. You really are an inspiration. And I appreciate everything you're doing for learners around the world and for the Faculty Factory and for your collaboration and friendship. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for your service to all our patients. Hello, everybody. It's your podcast producer, Casey Callanan. I just want to let you know that as of October 1st, 2023, this podcast has had nearly 80,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries. On the facultyfactory.org website, We've drawn nearly 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. This is truly an international platform, and we'd love to invite you to be a guest on our show. Our host, Dr. Kimberly Skorupski, makes the experience very engaging, relaxing, and quite frankly, she makes it fun. As producer, I'll make the edits if you need it, so there's really no pressure on you, and we can make edits to your interview on the back end if you'd like us to. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world so we can all learn from each other. Please reach out if you'd like to be a guest or to nominate someone in our academic medicine community that you think would be a great guest for us to hear from. You can visit the Contact Us page on facultyfactory.org, or you can contact Dr. Skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.